Guys, I have an amazing story for you today with my friend Greg from Maui Homebuyers. Guys, let me tell you, there's times that we need to know the technical aspects of this business. We need to know how to lead generate, how to negotiate, how to deal structure, but there's other times that we just need inspiration. And that's exactly what we have today. Greg is going to be talking about how he went from struggling with major addictions in life to being homeless, to deciding to become an investor, and being able to go from that to success in one of the most difficult markets in the country, Maui, Hawaii. And I just came from this interview really feeling inspired, really feeling like, gosh, if Greg can make it work in those kinds of circumstances, then I really feel like it takes away everybody else's disbelief and everybody else's excuses that's really holding them back. So you're going to want to listen to this. I was really happy to spend this time with Greg, and you're going to want to listen to this episode. So without further delay, here's Greg. Overcoming addiction was the first step. I was sober for a few years before even getting anywhere near thinking about investing. You can accomplish anything. No matter how low you get, there's always a way out of it. Maui is a tough market, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Holy cow, like, I'm a surfer that lives on Maui, that gets to surf every day that gets to do what I love and I'm passionate about. And that's a big thing. I'm passionate about real estate and I get to make a great living. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Greg, welcome to Investor Creator. Hey, Brad. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Man, been really looking forward to this because your story is just so inspiring. So it's just unbelievable. I'm really excited to get into this. So let's dive into what you were doing pre-real estate and what caused you to kind of get into the real estate world. Well, um, my dad, so (laughs) we're talking pretty young here. When I was a kid, my dad was in real estate. My dad passed away when I was 14, but he was kind of a real estate developer, sort of position, uh, acquisitions, sort of role at Carnival Hotels and Resorts. And um, I think that that kind of always sent a subliminal message to me. So I think it was always planted in me because of my dad. But I went into a a real estate right out of high school and became an appraiser up until the recession hit and um, didn't stay in in real estate. But, um, you know, practice real estate, got the passion going. I got my interest was very high. It was really excited and interested in working in real estate. Then the recession hit, everything changed. Um, I had a lot of personal struggles of my own and uh, lost my path for a while before coming back to real estate. Gotcha. So you went into the appraisal world at 19. What caused you to get into that? I mean, it seems like more of an odd thing to, to get into at that age. 
That was actually all thanks to a long-term boyfriend of my sister's at the time, a guy named George Levy, who had been dating my sister for a long time, I don't know, probably eight years or so. And he and I were good friends. He was just a really, he's a really great guy. And he became an appraiser. He was a few years ahead of me. So he, I guess, uh, you know, he also came from a strong real estate family and became an appraiser out of high school. So by the time I was graduating of high school, he was a certified appraiser and I could work under him. So that's how that happened. And uh, that really got my interest in real estate sparked back up. Okay. So you decided to become an appraiser and what kind of interested you in the investing side? So I'm sure that there was a moment where you thought, like I did, because I sold real estate prior to becoming an investor, I want to be an owner and not working on the transaction. Well, there's a lot of uh, experiences while I was doing appraisal that you know gave me kind of a glimmer, uh, like a, a little bit of a hint as to what the other side looked like. One particular time that stands out, and I've told this story on other shows before, it was a really just is the main thing, you know, when I think back on this time that sticks out in my mind. And I was doing an appraisal on a, an old, you know, war zone kind of property. And I pull up to the property, wait for the owner. The owner pulls up and he's like, this kid, I mean, he's probably, I don't know, 25 maybe at the most. Um, and he pulls up in a red Ferrari F360 or something like that, you know, some Ferrari. And I'm just like blown away. I'm like, what is going on? Like, I mean, what does this guy do? How does he do this? Like, I'm obsessed with cars. I'm passionate about cars. So I can really appreciate a machine like a Ferrari. And anyway, it turns out that that guy was flipping houses. I would venture to guess that he might not have the Ferrari anymore because it was all based on speculation back then. But the seed was planted. And, you know, it stuck with me ever since. And I knew that investing in real estate, I didn't know the fundamentals of investing and, and how to invest, but I knew that the potential was there. And I also was passionate about real estate. So those two things combined. Very good. So, and how old were you at this point? Uh, I did appraisal from about 19 um, to only about, only a few years, uh, three years or so. I was just about to become certified so that I could start my own appraisal office when the recession hit. And I, you know, so basically from 19 to about 21 and just one day all of a sudden I went in and there was no more appraisals. Wow. And so what did you do at that point? <laughs> I went and got a job selling cars at the car dealership <laughs> that lasted for about 14 days. <laughs> But no, I went. I ended up going back to school. I tried to find another job where I could make, you know, good income, and realized it wasn't so easy to do. And went back to school at that point. But I, I, I was also, you know, I went back to school, got an associate's degree, started getting towards my bachelor, and then I kind of struggled a little bit with my, well, not a little bit, a lot of it with my addiction. And so that was a, a long process of, of recovering from drug addiction, which is something I struggled with ever since my dad passed away when I was 14. That's really interesting. I'm a big fan of a, a doctor named Gabor Mate, and he's a Canadian doctor, and he's a specialist on trauma. And he talks about how almost all addiction is 
directly linked to some sort of childhood trauma. So do you feel like your the death of your father really created that addiction for you? Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and debating it. And the bottom line is I, I don't think there's any, you can ever just point a finger at one thing. Like I think that losing my dad was a catalyst that just catapulted me down this nasty spiral. But even before my dad dying, I do remember having thoughts as a child of, of, um, just being curious about like trying drugs and, th- you know, and when I talk to other people that are not addicts. They're like, they don't get it. Right. They, they think I remember sitting in dare class as a kid and thinking, Oh, drugs are horrible. Right. right. Whereas, you know, my perspective was, I thought, well, that sounds like really interesting. I'm going to try it. Um, interesting. So I think, that, you know, it's not just, I think it was already in me. There was something there. There is definitely some genetic, you know, extent, but uh, the, the trauma of my dad's death certainly initiated the process of my downward spiral. And so at some point, your use of substance really got out of control. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say it just, it just progressed. I mean, I was out of control from age 15. I mean, you know, I was out of control, but I, my addiction to the substance wasn't something that it was something that slowly was progressing, you know, in the background while I thought I was partying and having fun and just uh, being, you know, I thought there was nothing wrong with me. Like I was just a kid having fun, but uh, yeah, eventually one day uh, I had an arrest and they said, okay, you will drop all the charges if you stay sober for a year. I said, okay, sure. No problem. And then, you know, trying to stay sober for one day, I was like, oh man, I got a problem here. I can't do this that's when it all kind of was, that was my wake up call. So to say I was about 22 years old at that point. Wow. And so at what point did you begin the investing side of your business? Um, that, okay. So I bought my first investment property. I did my first deal in 2017. So just three years now. Okay. And so one thing that I find really interesting for people that are new to the business is that there's, almost a sexiness to what we do. Like people see HGTV and they think, oh man, like how amazing would it be for me to live that life? But the problem that I have is I have, you know, problem A, problem B, problem C, problem D, none of which are are really true conditions that would stop anyone from doing anything, you know? And I think that your story really tells that in a great way. What was the bridge that took you from addict to investor? How did that transition work? Because it seems like mindset would be at the forefront of this. Well, yeah. So recovery was number one, right? I mean, investing is not even something I could have even dreamed about (laughs) without recovery. So um, I recovered. That was a long process. A lot of really low moments, which... You know, I'll just share just in case there's anybody out there that may be coming out of something similar or whatever, but I went through, you know, a lot of the rock bottom kind of situations between overdosing. My mom found me overdosed in her house and gave me CPR, um, going to jail, go, uh, being homeless, like all these just rock bottom things that got me to the point where I said, I cannot live this life anymore. And ultimately, you know, like as horrible and hard as those things are to go through, those are what 
gave me the fuel that I needed to to fight such a you know worthy opponent and overcome addiction. And not to say I've overcome it because I could be right back any day now, but um, I'm on the right path. And I, if I stick to this path, I can keep this life that I've built. So yeah, overcoming addiction was the first step. Um, I, I was sober for a few years before even getting anywhere near thinking about investing. But uh, the next step was working hard and saving. So I, I built a really strong habit. I'm really grateful that I, I read a book in my really early recovery. It was called Start Late, Finish Rich. And it's an old book and a lot of it's probably not relevant today. I don't know. But at the time, it was like really eye-opening for me and really made a big difference in my life because it taught me to be frugal, basically, not spend all my money. And so I read that right when I was coming to recovery. I started getting my first like kind of real jobs since being an appraiser. And I practiced the, the uh, strategies in the book, like just basically saving, right? Living below my means and saved a lot of my income and was able to put money aside. And that, that was a really big, you know, one of the reasons why I attribute to being able to go out and buy my rental property. That doesn't mean, you know, anybody could start investing. If you can save a couple thousand dollars, I think you can become an investor. You start with doing some wholesaling, you know, you got to have a few thousand dollars for marketing, a few thousand dollars for earnest money deposits and, you know, just backup kind of thing. But I think anybody can do that. Um, in my case, I was frugal enough and worked hard enough to earn enough that I could save up $30,000 and buy my first rental property. So yeah, big process there. And we can unpack that as much as you'd like. So wow, you'd save $30,000 just working hard and just living frugally. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of people would just say that that's impossible being that you, I'm assuming now had a criminal record, correct? I did. I was able to get the felonies reduced to misdemeanors. So that was a big deal. And I just was straight up with people when I got into a job interview and they were like, Hey, you know, we got to talk about something that came up on your background. And I would say, yeah, so here's the deal. Here's my story. You know, just like, um, it's funny cause that kind of relates now to when I'm applying, you know, screening tenants for my rentals. I tell them like, Hey, you got a felony, you got an eviction anything like that on your record. Let me know. It's not a deal breaker. I am totally okay with you having an eviction, but if you lie about it, it's a deal breaker. That was kind of my philosophy back then too. I would just tell my employers, you know. So you're just hundred percent upfront, honest, and, and people receive that pretty well. And to put it into context, I mean, what part of the country are you living? So I live in Maui, Hawaii. I grew up in Miami, Florida. So up until basically when I got sober is when I moved to Maui. Okay, so whenever you were scrimping and saving and, and living below your means, you were doing that in Maui, Hawaii, correct? Yeah. And that's one of the cheapest parts of the country, isn't that right? Oh, yeah, it's super cheaper. <laughs> you know, so it's like, man, if Greg can do this in one of the most expensive parts of the country, I mean, anybody should be able to do this. Does that make sense? Like, it's just a, really amazing. So you saved up $30,000. At what point did the vision board become a part of this? 
Okay, so the vision board, I believe it was 2016. Um, I knew, you know, I had made them before, but in 2016, I made my first vision board where I, for the first time, put a rental property on my vision board. And I also put a home, you know, a home that I wanted to build as my primary. And I put those two things on the vision board. And at that time, I couldn't even fathom like i mean it just was such an impossible dream to me at that time less than a year later though i had my first rental property and my primary residence i was in the process of building (laughs) my primary residence like almost the same house that i put on the vision board so i'm a big believer in vision boards and then the other thing that um i believe made a big impact was podcasts you know listening to all the real estate investor podcasts taught me all these things, you know, and also the, uh, you know, finding bigger pockets online that was helpful, but really listening to the podcast and the vision boards, the two things that helped me create a vision, you know, chase it every day. And also like listen to other people that had accomplished what I wanted to do and realize like, this is totally possible. You don't have to be a billionaire to go invest in real estate. So yeah, that, I credit everything to those two tools. Let's unpack that just a bit. So for those that don't really understand, what is a vision board? Let's talk about that. And then secondly, how did you create it? And did you have like a, a daily ritual with that vision board? To me, a vision board is a uh, poster sort of board that has images that represent things that I want to create or attract in my life. I don't actually know what the definition of a vision board is, but that's the definition, you know, Greg's definition. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, at that time I was taking a poster board and clipping out pictures out of magazines and gluing them onto the thing. And then I'd put it up in my room or somewhere where I would see it every day. And the brain, you know, you got to check with Tony Robbins on this stuff. He should be able to clarify, but I think it's the reticulator activating system that is a part of the brain that, the way I understand this is that you see the vision board every day, even though you don't consciously or you know see it and, and it doesn't register in your mind, right? But subliminally, your brain is seeing that vision board and it's remembering, oh, we want to own rental property. And it sends a message and it tells your brain what to do. You know, you got to take these steps and, and you actually, without even realizing it, go and take the steps to accomplish those goals because of the reticulator activating system. I probably just butchered that whole (laughs) thing, but that's kind of my understanding of it. And that's why I'm a big believer in this stuff. So now what I do is, uh, you know, we've got a little more technology at our hands today. So instead of doing the physical clipping out of pictures, I use uh, different websites that allow you to just upload images and kind of combine them into a collage. And then I can, you know, I print that out and, For example, right now, I have a vision board um, printed out on my refrigerator. I have one that's the background on my laptop. I have one that's the back, you know, they're all the same image, but I have it also as the background of my cell phone. You know, I have it everywhere. So, and I, obviously I see this thing every single day. I mean, probably 50 times a day, but I never realize it. Like I never notice my vision board. It's just there, you know, when the background image is something for so long, you forget about, you don't notice it anymore but I still believe that it's sending a message to my brain and helping to keep me motivated on track to accomplish the goals that are important to me. 
Man, that is so powerful. And it's something that I've experienced as well. So I'll tell you a quick story. I'm not a car guy. Okay. So like I, I like cars to the extent that they're comfortable and they get me where I'm going, but I don't know the difference in a Ferrari and a Lotus and a Lamborghini and that kind of thing. Right. But um, so I have a vision board on my cell phone, very similar to what Greg just said. So there are different apps in the the Google store or the, the iTunes store where you can take pictures and rearrange them and different things. And it becomes the background on your phone. And there's other apps where like you spend time and almost like active hypnosis with these pictures. Okay. So you can kind of check those out. But so I had a vision board on my phone and it had a, you know, different things on there, but it had this car. Okay. And so what happened with me is I was driving on the interstate and my car, I was driving a BMW and shout out to BMW, but uh, cause I love BMWs. It just did not work out well for me this time. But my BMW, it said, caution, low oil. I was about maybe 10 minutes from the dealer. I was like, well, let me just get it to the dealer. And then it said like critical, like two minutes later, critical, low oil. And I mean, my engine just completely came apart. I was on the side of the interstate. And so I'm like, well, I've got a busy day. I need a car. So like I walked to a different dealer and I said, hey, I need a car. Mine's on the side of the interstate and I need a car. What do you have with like the premium stereo? And, you know, these kind of features. And I ended up driving out of there with the car that was on my vision board. I didn't even notice it until like two months later. I was looking at my vision board. Oh, man, that looks like the car. I was like, it is the car. And I didn't even realize it. It was like the most amazing thing. So I'm a huge, huge believer in vision boards as well. And it it comes down to this, in my opinion. If we do not have a focus on what the future is supposed to look like, then the little paper cuts along the way are going to destroy us. Because anytime in the entrepreneur world, like it's you're always dealing with minor problems. Well, they can become really painful if you're not focused on the right thing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And man, I mean, that is such a great story about how powerful vision boards are. I kind of have a similar story too with the car front, you know, like I put this car on my vision board I never could have imagined buying. And I mean, I'm talking like a few months later, I'm driving one. It's insane how it just works. There's no explanation. That's crazy. So one thing that I've thought about, like, if I didn't have this car on the vision board, would my car have broken down on the side of the interstate? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like in the matrix. Test on that. Like, we, yeah, we need some kind of test to be able to uh, experiment to prove this theory. Like, you know, does it actually cause these events to happen so that we get to, uh, you know, buy the car and accomplish the goal? Yeah. And even if like getting to that goal was not exactly the way you'd hoped. If I had the choice to push a button and my car break down on the side of the interstate, I'd probably said, no, I don't think I want to do that today. But moving on. So, I mean, really, really interesting stuff there. So, you, you know what? I, so, I, not to harp on this, but yeah. it's, while you yeah. were just saying that, I just remembered that that's actually almost identical to what happened to me. My truck broke down. I had this 15-year-old truck, you know, I was making like you know, more than a few hundred thousand dollars a year. And I'm driving this $3,000 beater truck. And, um, you know, just because again, I'm saving, I'm trying to live below my means and trying to get to the goal faster of never having to worry about working again and never having to worry what happens with the economy or anything. So the truck breaks down for the third time in three months on Christmas day. And I'm just over it. (laughs) So uh, it was at that point that, I decided to go out and buy, you know, I was like, I need to get rid of this truck. And I went out and bought this Porsche 
and I didn't wasn't even thinking about it at the time. I just found, you know, I ended up getting a good deal on a car that I was absolutely crazy about that, you know, I shared a passion for Porsche with my dad. So there's a lot of meaning with behind it there. And it wasn't until after I owned the car that I noticed my vision board and I noticed the Porsche on my vision board. And I thought, holy cow, I just, you know, like that just manifested itself. And I didn't, I wasn't even aware of it. And our stories are really similar though. That's crazy. (laughs) All right. So wrapping up the, your recovery, because I'm sure with the reach that we have on the podcast, that that there's someone out there listening that has struggled with addiction or is currently struggling with addiction. For those that are in that situation, what advice do you have to give them in terms of their recovery process? Um, man, you know, that's a, there's so much, we could talk for hours about this and, and I'm so passionate about this subject to and I hope that I'm being of service and helping somebody out there by uh via this podcast. That's my goal by the way. Nothing that I say on this show is to kind of brag or anything. You know, I mentioned the flashy car and stuff and the reality is like that is just my way of sharing my uh story in the hopes that somebody out there that is where I was 10 years ago will hear it and say oh my God, maybe there's hope for me, right? Because I was, actually, I didn't mention I was suicidal for a while. Like I very close to, you know, I was planning and talking about different ways of taking my life with a friend that I was suffering an addiction with. And we were both, you know, kind of trying to come up with a, a way to escape without going through any pain or suffering. And so, you know, it was it's as low as it gets, right? Like, um, so if anybody out there is kind of, you know, going through any of that or coming out of any of that and just not being able to see um, how life could ever be worth living. Cause that's how I felt for so long. I mean, how on earth will I ever have a life that's worth living? Um, it's amazing how things change once you start on the right path. Right. And yeah, it takes time and it doesn't happen overnight. But once it does happen, it feels like it happened in a flash, first off. And it's having experiences like that, I believe, like, I'm so grateful that I went through all that suffering. Now, I would never want to go through it again. (laughs) But, you know, it's in the past and it's over. And it's like the biggest asset that I have now. It's such an advantage because everything in life I appreciate so much. And it also helps me in my business. Like, I, you know, part of my business is, um, doing buy and hold and burr investing. And, um, I focus more on lower end housing since I self-manage and I, you know, I look for opportunities to get people out of the homeless shelter, get people that are struggling that, that deserve housing, good tenants. We screen them thoroughly, but you know, a lot of them were good people, hardworking people that had an accident and can never work again. Uh, Um, things like that. And it just, you know, I think that because I've been through these lows, like that kind of motivates me more to want to help people that might be living the same way that I was living. Um, although like I was living that way by, in a sense, by choice, because I chose to use drugs. So it's a little different when you're living that life because you had an accident you have no control over. But uh, yeah, I would just, again, get back to the point is you can accomplish anything, no matter how low you get there's always a way out of it. And a lot of times it's hard to see that, but 
I, I promise you, like, I mean, to just, there's no possible way I ever could have envisioned a life anywhere remotely even. I mean, you know, I was trying to figure out a way, like, how could I ever get to a point in life where I can make a job, you know, get a job making forty or $50,000 a year so that I can, you know, not struggle paycheck to paycheck, right? Like, that was my goal. If I could get to that, I would have been beyond uh, thrilled. And um, it's just, I've gone so far past that, that the point is, if you reach for the stars, you're selling yourself short because you could go you can do anything and having that low, having those negative experiences, those bottoms, those suffering, pain and suffering is an asset and it will, or it can be used to help you accomplish more and uh, get closer to your goals and uh, have a more fulfilling life. Man, that's unbelievable. Just absolutely amazing. So you're in recovery. You begin to take a look at the investing model and say, Hey, this is something that I want to do. You create the vision board. So what happened during that year that caused you to begin buying property and also be to the point where you could start to build your own personal residence? Well, again, you know, I worked really hard. Um, I increased my income first off, but when I increased my income, I didn't increase my spending. So I think that's a really big factor to kind of mention. It's really important to, to me, which also today, like now I've, you know, back then I went from making $38,000 a year to making, you know, 50 something. And then eventually I got up to where I was getting close to six figures. And when I was getting close to that six figure mark, I was still living on the 38,000. So, you know, I, I was renting a room in a house with four roommates and a two bedroom house and paying $600 a month where, you know, I had friends that were making half as much as me that were paying 1500 a month in rent to have their own apartment. And I was like, I'm a single guy. Like I didn't need, you know, like there's no, no reason. So I just lived below my means. That's how I saved. And I just saved and saved and saved. And, um, meanwhile, I had been looking at properties. Initially I was looking at stuff on the MLS cause I didn't really, it wasn't until I heard enough podcasts really that I understood that, you know, buying on MLS is not necessarily a bad strategy and it depends on your market too, right? But on Maui, you know, if you want to buy something on the MLS, you better have two, $300,000 ready to go. And you're probably going to be paying over market value, not going to have equity. So I looked at stuff on MLS for a long time, made a lot of offers, then analyzed a lot of properties. And thank God I never pulled the trigger on any of them. I would have been fine if I did, you know, it wouldn't have been a big deal. I would have made a small return and I would have learned a whole lot. But by analyzing all those deals, I learned what makes a deal a deal. I really got to understand, you know, what the numbers and values and cash on cash returns and all these different things. So when a deal actually presented itself, I knew that was a deal. And I was like, I'm all in, I'm taking it, you know, and uh, it, it never looked back since. And, those same principles have stuck with me. And I believe that's what's helped me to grow and continue scaling. So tell us about your first deal. How did that come about? And tell us the numbers if you don't mind. It was a, a condo. So I, I mentioned a lot of my, uh, I buy a lot of rentals in a lower end kind of rental on Maui. It's a condo building that uh, market values are, they sell for around 150,000. At that time, they were selling for about 100, yeah, right around 100,000. 
And this was a foreclosure that I was able to pick up for 70000 And, you know, it wasn't in great shape, but it didn't really need a rehab. Like, I just kind of painted it, cleaned it up, and, you know, I turned it into a Section 8 rental. And it, it worked great for that. And it cash flowed. Uh, so I purchased it for 70000 it rented for seventeen hundred. Um, it uh, well, and you know, remember it's a condo, so that's oh, true because you have your association. The fees. rent, to, yeah, the rent to price ratio. And people are just like, what? But yeah, the HOAs are six hundred dollars, so that's a big chunk. But um, it still cash flows. I mean, thirty something percent cash on cash return, so it does really well. Um, I still actually just finished doing a renovation on that unit last week. So uh, it does well. What else did I miss? Oh, at the purchase, I bought it for seventy. It appraised for ninety-five. It's now worth about one hundred and sixty, I'd say. And yeah, it was it was a great deal. And you know, I, when I bought that one, I thought, okay, I'll buy this one, and you know, maybe uh, in a year or so, I'll be ready to get the next one. And two months after I bought that one, I was in escrow for the next one. I mean, it blew my mind. Like, I, you know. It's like a lot of times you hear people say the purpose of the first deal is to get you to the second. And boy, is that true. I mean, I, again, like it was one of those things like how the vision board works where I was just like, holy cow. Yeah. I have my yeah. second one under escrow. How did that happen? <laughs> you, know? yeah, you wake up one day and you have a business and you're like, really? Did, did this just happen? <laughs> yeah. And you got to do the first deal for that to happen. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, this has been pretty recently. So you bought your first deal in 17. We're now in at near the end of 2020. So, I mean, what does your business look like now? Uh, So right now I have seven rentals. And in the three years I've been active, I think I've getting up to about 20 deals now. So I did, uh, I think it might be 18 to be exact. I'm not hundred uh, percent sure, but it's kind of a spectrum of a lot of different things. Um, you know, we got the seven rentals, I'm looking for more rentals. And then I also have the, um, you know, I do some wholesales. So when a deal comes up, that's not quite, you know, good enough for me to pull the trigger on, it might be perfect for somebody else. So I'll, I'll assign it to another investor to make some more capital that I can put back into, um, buying more rentals. And then I also do flips with my business partner, kind of a little bit of a well-known guy, Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets. And uh, we're scaling a business flipping houses here on Maui. So let's talk about that, the, the market there in Maui. So Maui's like my favorite place in the world. I've been there twice and I'm really seriously looking at uh, doing an extended stay, maybe six or nine months there in the next year or two. But if I do that, I'll definitely have to connect with you guys. But in terms of the business there, so it seems like you have two things that are against you. So number one, whenever I'm looking at the places that I would want to stay in, there in Maui, one of my my goals is to get something that's like practically oceanfront. So I mean, there are some places where you have like almost 360 panoramic views, but it's not like really oceanfront. I'd still classify that as being okay. But all that to say, you have like six and $7 million houses that might have a 40 or 50K mortgage but you can rent these things for like 15K a month, you know, and I'm sure that that doesn't really extrapolate down to the normal average neighborhoods there in Maui, but it seems like it's a difficult place to make the rents work and also a difficult place to, to start off in terms of buying equity positions because the prices are so high. How have you been able to navigate that? Well, first off, um, those seven, eight, $10 million properties, I'm not exactly focused on buying those as 
long-term rentals. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, that was a joke. Um, but yeah. Oh, uh, no, I, yeah, I, I got it. Maui, <laughs> Maui is a tough market. And I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate because I don't know that there's any such thing as an easy market out there. But um, it's a tough market, you know. There's so much competition. There's so much big money coming from outside and people willing to pay just crazy prices, regardless of the condition. One of our challenges here is that, um, so funny, actually, when Brandon moved here, Brandon moved here maybe three years ago. And uh, he and I had, when we first started talking about working together, we went to see a uh, an REO, you know, foreclosure listed on the MLS. And we're walking the property and the realtor mentioned there's a, another buyer that's a first-time home buyer using an FHA loan. She's going to make an offer, a uh, full ask price. And Brandon said, oh, well, that'll never happen. And we're all like, what do you mean? Why wouldn't it happen? And he's like, well, she's never going to get an FHA loan on this house. And we're all standing there saying, what do you mean? Why? And he, <laughs> Brandon's like... Well, look at the windows. I mean, look at the condition of this place. Like, you know, they'll never, you know, like things just in horrible condition. And we're all saying, well, every house looks like this on Maui. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's not a lot of, you know, there, well, there are renovated properties here, but there's a lot of original properties that were built in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s and have not been renovated since. And, that's just how Maui is. So, you know, what I got from that is that maybe if this house was in Washington, an appraiser would come in and say, uh, these old jealousy louver windows need to be replaced. Um, the floor, the old linoleum floor needs to be replaced or whatever. You know, he might have like required updates for it to pass the appraisal and get financing. Whereas on Maui, the appraisers just understand like that's just the market you know like that's the way things are and so that i think makes a uh creates a challenge for us because that property now can qualify for financing and can sell on the mls and is like that seller is not limited to selling to a flipper or wholesaler and so that's definitely a big challenge for us if it just means we need to be creative work harder and you know be able to pivot if needed and um think outside the box. Um, but at the same time, I would say the principles of the business are not much different. You know, it's, I would say like, there's a lot of competition and that's another challenge. There's other challenges here, but the principles are, we do our direct mail, we watch the foreclosures, you know, we just do like the same things everybody else does. You know, we have the website and, um, we cover all the bases and we get a lot of leads where people call and say, Hey, my, uh, you know, I know my property could sell on MLS for seven fifty. So if you guys want to buy it directly from me without realtors commissions, pay cash and close quick, we'll sell it to you for seven forty five. <laughs> and we say, yeah, I think we're going to pass on that one. Um, <laughs> they're like, oh no, you could turn around, sell it, on, sell it on MLS, and make five grand. And we're like, not quite. There's a little bit more it goes into it than that. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we, we get a lot of that, but, um, you know, it's weeding through all those unmotivated sellers and finding the motivated sellers and, and the real, real distressed properties that qualify and then work out. Yeah, that's how we do it. 
Yeah, and that, and that makes sense. And I agree with you. I mean, the fundamentals stay the same regardless of market. And that's one of the, the things that we learned whenever we started buying out of state. So, I mean, my first deal out of state was one state over. And I did everything that I could to not buy this property. So I was like, okay, well, you know, this is our price. And she was like, that's fine. I was like, well, you own it free and clear. Can you finance it? She was like, yeah, that's fine. I was like, well, it's at a 0% rate. Is that cool? Yeah, that's fine too. And I'm like, I'm really running out of reasons to not, to not buy this. And once I cleared that first hurdle of like, oh, maybe uh, investing one state over is kind of like investing in a different country and, and you find out it's not, then you, you realize that the fundamentals remain the same regardless of market. But I mean, at the end of the day, what I'm really, I man, frankly, I'm just so inspired by this conversation because, you know, thinking about you had what I feel is almost everything against you between, you know, having a loss of your father and, you know, you didn't come from money and you probably didn't have a ton of time. And then you had this huge addiction issue and you're not in an easy market whatsoever. And you still, from the time that you made a decision to do this, you still did it and fairly quickly. I mean, so living the life that you have now, I mean, how does it feel to look back at what you've been through and be like, man, this is the life I'm living? Well, first, I do want to say that, you know, you did mention a lot of the reasons why I can't, you know, or, or should, you know, excuses that I could have had. Right. Yeah. But I do want to also mention, and I don't want to give anybody else an excuse that doesn't have these advantages, but I did have a lot of advantages. One being my mom. My mom is like the most incredible mom on the planet. And I owe everything to her. I mean, she never gave up on me and she fought for me. I mean, like, I have friends that's, you know, their parents just said, forget it. I'm done with you, you know, yeah. and they, they gave up on them. And my mom never gave up on me. She fought for me as long as she needed and she would have kept fighting for me. And she sacrificed everything to get me better. And she did it. So I owe it all to her. Um, so I did have some things going for me. That, um, but uh, to answer your question, it's still pretty unbelievable. Um you know, anytime that I sit down and think about it, (laughs) it's just like, I, it's, I, it's, I cannot believe that this is my life now, you know, like every morning I do my little, you know, yoga and then meditation. And I write a little bit of goals and, you know, to do list sort of thing for the day. And, um, almost every morning I just sit there and think like, you know, remind myself to be grateful and then, you know, starts with that. And then that gets me to thinking about, holy cow, like I'm a surfer that lives on Maui that gets to surf every day that gets to do what I love and I'm passionate about. And that's a big thing. I'm passionate about real estate and I get to make a great living, you know, and, and it might not always be this way. I'm sure there's going to be times when it's, you know, kind of, Real estate tends to be feast or famine, so we'll have challenging times possibly soon. But um, you know, we plan and prepare for those times so that they don't take us out of the business. But uh, yeah, it's just—I mean, there's nothing I couldn't ask for more in life. It, it's a life beyond my wildest dreams, and it just goes to show that it doesn't matter. Again, like I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but like it doesn't matter where you come from, how bad things get, anybody can do this. If you devote... And another thing that I think it's important to mention is I spent a lot of months and days and weeks and 
working endless hours, you know, like working from 7 a.m. till midnight, <laughs> you know, take a break to go, you know, an hour break to go surf, an hour break to have dinner. And other than that, you know, 12 hour, 13, 14 hour days. Now, recently I haven't been doing that so much. I've been able to have a little bit more balanced schedule. But in the last uh, week, and I might be a little scatterbrained today because I've been doing that for the last week because we've got a lot going on right now. So, you know, it, it's not easy. It, it takes a lot of hard work, but anybody can do it. Greg, an amazing story. I appreciate you being with us so much. For those that are interested in reaching out to you, maybe they have a deal in Maui or they're just, they want to recognize you for what you've accomplished. What's the best way that they can get in touch with you? I'll give my email address. So if anybody, you know, if you've got a lead on Maui, please reach out. We're definitely interested. My email is greg at MauiHomeBuyers.com. So it's G-R-E-G at MauiHomeBuyers, plural.com. And then also my Instagram, we have two. We have one that we're trying to build for the business, which is at MauiHomeBuyers. And then uh, my personal Instagram is at Investor.Greg. Very good. We Guys, we'll put that in the show notes. Greg, appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, Brad. It's I love, I'm a big fan of your show. Love the show. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be a guest on your show today. Thank you for having me.